Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have High Fidelity, starring John Cusack, Jack Black, Ibn Hegele, Lisa Bonet, Catherine Zeta-Jones, and Tim Robbins, directed by Stephen Frears. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films, as today we close our Love is Spelled with an X, E-X cask, and we're going to be doing that with the film from, from 2000, High Fidelity. Now, I know, Matt, you were pretty excited to speak about this film last week. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there's lots of movies that sort of fit into a mold that are music and a Gen X sort of deliverance. Obviously, singles comes into play. Mm-hmm. You could say reality bites. But to me, this is the quintessential Gen X film. Okay. Uh, the movie that feels the most like a Cameron Crowe film that wasn't directed by Cameron Crowe. Definitely. It def- right? It does, it, def- it does have that feel. But more, more, more on that, that Gen X kind of feel kind of, kind of later and, and kind of speaking in, into that genre. Yeah. But before, we're continuing on with the Big and t- Bib and Tucker. We did quite a bit of damage last week with The Graduate. And Miss <laughs> Mrs. Robinson must have thrown us through the ringer. But, um, Bourbon or scotch. Yeah, and this one was pretty good. Um, this I we just bought this one on a whim. I know you rather enjoyed it. I know I know I enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, let's kind of kind of toast to that one here. Get this one started. Yeah, it's some... been a really nice bottle. Yeah, we actually haven't had a bad bottle yet, have we? Exactly. There should be some delineation between what's good and what's bad for the people that are listening, but that's not going to happen because mm-hmm. we pretty much liked everything we've tried so far. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good stuff. And off we go. There we go. So um, our flight for the week, you know, High Fidelity is smack jab filled as we're going to discuss with many different top fives. Like it always comes in series of fives, whether five girlfriends, five this, five that. So since this is a film kind of all centered around music and that's kind of the driving force of it. Um, Matt, we talk about music all the time that we have a lot of varying different tastes um, so what are your top five favorite bands? You do your five, I'll do mine. So let's just rattle them off. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to justify a whole lot of them. And this is today. One and two probably won't change for me, but five, four, and three, depending on the mood and the time, that could change. Okay. Okay, so checking in at number five for me is R.E.M. Everything up to Automatic for the People. After that, tends to get a little forgettable, but mm-hmm. I'm a big R.E.M. fan I actually do think that they might be in contention with ABBA. No, that's a joke. As one of the most underrated bands ever. Okay. Uh, there's so again, that's not to know that people haven't appreciated their work. Yeah. And that might be a question that we do for another day. Most underrated. Yeah. It's always fun because there's such discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's number five for me. Okay. Today, number four is Aerosmith. Okay. Up to Permanent Vacation. Okay. After Permanent Vacation. It's forgettable, not forgettable. Um, it's a little bit commercial, shall we say? A little Armageddon-y. Yeah, no, that song's really awful. And there's, the- I don't know if you knew this. This is that's actually their highest charted song in their history. Yeah, that's absurd. <laughs> and there's a couple good tracks on that. Yeah. Like I remember when Janie's Got a Gun was first released until mm-hmm. they played it to death. It was pretty good. There, there, you know, there's some decent stuff on that. Mm-hmm. My girl's pretty nice, but yeah, um, up to her permanent vacation. Okay. Number three is a non secular band. 
and it's kind of fits in the Gen X theme that we're going with. It's live. Okay. I love live. I've always loved live. Uh, I remember Pain Lies on the Riverside when I was 19 years old on MTV. Uh, Mental Jewelry is a fantastic album. And then they follow that up with Throwing Copper. That, I, I'm a huge live fan. Okay. And people are probably like, oh my God, I didn't know anyone liked that band. You do now. <laughs> I love that band. Number two is the Foo Fighters. Okay. I'm sure we probably both share that on the list of five. Uh-huh. And number one, which is kind of a different than sort of the rock element, it's Fleetwood Mac. Okay. That is my all-time favorite band. If, if I, if in my history with you, Matt, if there's any band that I've heard you play and hear you talk the most about, that's the one that comes up the most for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, like in my office, I have the signed... Rumors. Rumors album. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many different iterations of that band from yeah. English blues band to whatever the transition period was when Kerwin and Green left and mm-hmm. it was just uh, Mick Fleetwood and, and uh, John McVie. Yeah. And then they score Christy McVie and then, you know, the Buckingham Knicks era and then the various iterations of what that's been going forward. Yeah. For all the people out there that are fans of that band as well as I am, mm-hmm. if you really want some good Fleetwood Mac, don't actually listen to Fleetwood Mac. It sounds ridiculous, yeah. right? But check out... Buckingham Knicks, yeah. and you can listen to it on YouTube. You can't really find the album you without can. a whole it's lot of work. Unfindable unless you want to pay top dollar. There's seven fantastic songs on there. There's a song called Frozen Love, mm-hmm. which is just Lindsay and Stevie at their absolute best. Now, a couple of those tracks and some iterations mm-hmm. ended up making it to various Fleetwood Mac albums going forward. Yeah. But yeah, it's sort of strange. I mean, if you can say in the same breath that it's non secular live. Mm-hmm. Um, Postmodern <laughs> REM. Yeah, you got quite a different palette right there. <laughs> it's all it's all over the place, which is great. Aerosmith, the last remnants of grunge with Dave Grohl, the last living rock star, I think, on the planet. Mm-hmm. And yes, I am putting Jack White on blast by saying that. Yeah, that's okay. And then uh, Fleetwood Mac. Those are my five. Uh, have you ever seen uh, Fleetwood Mac live? Three times. Three times. Okay. I, I saw them obviously a little too young, or too no, I guess not. They're too old, and I'm a little too young to mm-hmm. see any of the tours. Yeah. But if you look at that album that's in my office, mm-hmm. the stub from Tusk is in that album mm, when wow. they played here. Um, Pretty but cool. Not for me. Like I caught him at the dance, and then I caught him two or three more times. And the third time we saw him, it was so reheated. Mm. Uh, you know, you knew that it was going to be "Go Your Own Way" and Lindsay's six-minute guitar solo, <laughs> and I love that solo. Yeah. <laughs> but it was almost to the beat. Yeah. That was scripted. Yeah. Um, and then you know you know what ruined that final showing for me? This is not even a, a statement on the band. Yeah. But there was these three idiot tween girls mm. sitting in front of us with their mom and dad. Mm-hmm. And they were on their fucking phones uh, texting the whole time. Yeah, that's... Normally working with teens, I don't really give a damn about that. Yeah. But it left such a bad taste in my mouth that these idiots yeah. couldn't put their phone down for 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. And it was just vines of cats and just bull- <laughs> bullshit and it really like that's not even yeah. about the band that's no, just the yeah, memory that goes with it's it it's the atmosphere and it speaks a lot on the current status of music which i'm not 100 percent a fan of but yeah it speaks directly to to that that's a shame why would you pay those tickets had to be 95 bucks plus yeah exactly to text don't appre- I wanted to like tap her mom and dad on the shoulder and be like, tell these idiots over here to put their phones away and grow the Don't fuck up. Don't appreciate what's in front of you. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. That... Excellent. That's a good list. All right. Thank I like you. it. I like it. I'm dying to hear yours. Uh, are you? Um, you might. <laughs> I'm starting with the doozy here. I know Matt doesn't really much care for this band, so my number five is actually The Doors. And Jesus, I'm out. This is me leaving right now. The yeah. Doors. <laughs> he left. He left. The. Uh, this is Jesse's going solo on this podcast. But no, the reason I like The Doors is I like to think back to that era of music, that late '60s, early '70s, and. A lot of these bands, they weren't all around for a very long time. I mean, you look at the Beatles, it was like a good like eight-year run. The 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 Doors had like a 52 or 53-month window where they were together. They turned out five, six really good albums, went on tour all over the world. But again, it's not for everybody. It's hard to deny Jim Morrison's unique vocal palette, it's to say the least. But yeah, he is an interesting uh, an interesting fella. Yeah, he finished the Doors entry at yeah, number five. <laughs> but, okay, and then number four, again, I think we're in agreement is, is the Foos, the Foo Fighters. Yeah, the last living true rock star, the last true rock band that really brings it. And I think they're amazing live, too. I think that's another component. You could be great on an album, but can you fill up an arena? And if you've ever seen their Wembley concert, oh, my God, like, yes. it's pretty amazing. It's How many like, times have you seen them live? I've only seen them once. Yeah. And... It was unfortunate because Dave Grohl was in broken leg mode. But man, the guy rocked from the sitting down position. I can't imagine any other person doing what he does every night, screaming as loud as he does. Like, Now, we were both at that show. And you know what always yeah. sticks out in that show to me was, yeah, yeah he's in the throne with his broken leg. Mm-hmm. But remember the moon that night? Mm-hmm. And their little cover of Bad Moon Rising that was by awesome. CCR? So cool. They did like a three-song set that uh, covered, you know, what was it? Bad Moon Rising mm-hmm. and I forget what the other they two did were. Tom Sawyer. Tom Sawyer. They did some Pink Floyd. I think they did some Queen too. Like they played almost four hours. They like, sure did. Like, there's not a lot of bands that were willing to go that long. They were that, like and just them. They they were willing to go that long. Mm-hmm. Great band. Yep. Number three, another bit of an acquired taste, but it's hard to deny the proficiency and the musicianship with this group, this trio, and that's Rush. Um, yeah. You know, they've turned out so many albums, so many gold records, um, and another great live band, too. And they're another one that plays for, for three and a half hours into their 60s, their, their, their late 50s, 60s. But Geddy Lee on the bass, Alex Lifeson on guitar, Neil, Neil Peart, however you want to pronounce it, mm-hmm. on the drums. Arguably three of the best on each of those instruments. And to uh, Yon Winter out there, yeah. the most egregious absentee from the rock and roll hall of fame until what 2012 yeah shame on you i know you don't have a thing against anthem rock yon winner mr former rolling stone ceo it might might have been 2014 2013 i mean are you kidding me yeah you look at who's in and who wasn't at that point and and to that can i just say one more thing and not to steal your yeah yeah go ahead well we're getting into that yeah and this goes back to fleetwood max stevie Mm -hmm. nicks just got inducted okay you know pat benatar has never even been nominated how many grammys that woman has won i know it's like seven she won Best Female Rock Vocalist from like 1980 to 1984. Mm-hmm. Every single year. You know me, yeah. Steve. You know me, Grammy Stevie Stevie Nicks has won solo. Mm. Yeah, that, that exactly yeah. zero. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not even nominated. Yeah, that's a shame. Yeah. I mean, I guess Edge of Seventeen is a good song, but I'll show. I'll see your Edge of Seventeen and raise you with Fire and Ice, and it's not even close. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm so promising. No, yeah, that, dark. no, that's good. Yeah, the the Rock and Roll of Fame to 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 one extent is. Is interesting to say the least, but yeah, they had to wait an eternity to get in, and all these great other like bands like 
even like Def Leppard, and I like Def Leppard to an extent, but I think Rush is a better band, like no question, all around. So yeah, they had to wait a little bit long, and and the Bob, the Foo's were the ones, Dave Grohl and uh, Taylor Hawkins Taylor were the Hawkins, ones right. that in, 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 introduced them. So you kind of see the influence there. Taylor Hawkins gets up there and says, "When did Rush become fucking cool?" Yeah, and the answer was never. Exactly. Yeah. And then they showed that album cover where they're in their um, best like glam rock their kimonos. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's great about Rush is you can get like on hard rocking with like a Tom Sawyer, but then man, it like Neil, Neil Peart would write those lyrics like to like the trees, and you're just like, what is this? But like it all kind of fits. And man, when those guys solo, they bring it. Yeah, that's number three. Agreed. Number two is uh, the Beatles, and I gotta I gotta admit just something here on the podcast. I was kind of a bit late to the Beatles, probably than I probably should have been. I was like, I was in college when I like first like actually took a Beatles class. It was called. Uh, uh, Beatles Revolution, and it really opened my eyes to how the Fab Four like started, and then just totally took over the world. Uh, something that's never been done before, since, and we'll never see that again. No, we'll never see that type of global takeover. And then also writing like incredible albums too. I'm a Rubber Soul guy. Like that's that might be maybe the best album ever ever created. But you know, Revolver and Sgt. Pepper, That's the what I was gonna say. White Revolver Album, for me. and yeah, Abbey Road. Like, you know, for those that you know don't realize, mu- music wouldn't be what it is today or throughout the decades if it wasn't for for those four guys figuring like a niche into society. Although I can respect their genius, they don't make my top five. Mm-hmm. But there's plenty of Beatles songs that yeah. I like. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that's the staying legacy for the Beatles is and the British invasion which would include the who and yeah. you know the stones other, and all that the stones and that that's that's the one that I prefer is the stones just yeah. outside the top five for yeah. me um, and depending on the day maybe in there mm-hmm. if you look back at the British invasion which ceased to exist mm-hmm. they still lasted yeah and if you compare other movements whether it's grunge or the vagina rock movement like the little disco. Kind of thing, or disco <laughs> yeah. or glam yeah. or hair or folk or whatever you want yeah i challenge anyone out there to find a band Mm -hmm. in its original state Mm -hmm. that has the staying power that they did like i'm a huge grunge guy yeah but the last vestige of grunge and the guy that made the movement is obviously Grohl, Mm -hmm. and he's not grunge anymore he's just rock yeah and if you go back and like listen to some of that stuff including live yeah it's aged Mm -hmm. whereas the beatles and again this is not from number one beatles fan i'm not i'm not yeah but they just have a timeless staying ability. And the whole, the way they recorded like analog recording mm-hmm. and like cutting edge sort of production at the time. Yeah. Really remarkable. The thing that really captivated me with the Beatles, and I'd never realized this prior, was I have this great DVD box set called Beatles Anthology. And it's like 60 to like their breakup. Okay. There's a lot of interviews that the press did with them, and they were just so charismatic, and they just played to the press so well. Like, they were funny. They were likable. Um, they all had distinct personalities. Like, the, he's the funny one. He's this and that. He's like, oh, we're good friends. He's, oh, that's my Paul McCartney, by the way. <laughs> Spot on. But... Uh, they just they knew how to they knew how to play to to the to the media and I think that they just became infectious. It, it, it got me so yeah sure. So they're number two. Man, you have one that's okay. That's a good one. Let's yeah. see what you got here. So I'm number dying. one, it's my all time favorite trio. It's my all time favorite British band, and much like the Doors, I think they had a window of about five or six years. Oh my god, don't do it. And it's the Police. Okay. 
Um, yeah, um, yeah, Sting, um, and Andy Andy Summers and um, and Stuart Copeland, uh, equally as proficient on their instruments as as many other musicians. But to turn out just five albums in that time, and all five of them are excellent. Uh, Ghost in the Machine and Synchronicity and Regatta de Blanc and uh, they're incredible and I kind of like that style that they they kind of brought. It's a What's little. The other one, Zena Mandata. Is, is it? it? Oh, and that's my favorite yeah, one, Zena Mandata. Yeah, yeah. Uh, between like a little bit reggae, a little bit ska, a little bit jazz, but a little bit rock in there. Well, Spirits in the Material World is that to the mm-hmm. letter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Sting's bass lines are they're incredible and and like. It's just they had so many catchy, catchy tunes too, and they're all about like you always think like oh it's a love song. This is a song about stalking. This is a song about prostitution. It's a song about suicide. Suicide. Yeah. This is a song so about lonely. yeah so lonely about like killing off in yourself. Yeah. Like their songs aren't like about like great topics, but they're just oh stand uh, don't stand so close. Yeah. Uh, it's about like uh, having one out with the teacher like it's uh yeah their songs are, are are interesting to say the least but i think just for that that time period and they couldn't even record synchronicity in the same room together they hated each other so much yeah, you're the one that taught me that i didn't know that mm-hmm. and that's for that album to turn out like that piecemeal because they couldn't be in the same room yeah and they're just like was that drugs or was that just sting's ego i think it was just it was ego it was like sting kind of knew he was on his way out and yeah they're probably just throwing each other fingers like between the recording windows and everything leave that to go island of blue turtles or dream of whatever bullshit so it never got it never got better yeah and then he went and did yeah dune and films like that but it never got better for them but they did come back in like the late 2000s for like a finale tour certifiable which is actually really great like they, they 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 went and played at Rio, and I have that that uh, that Blu-ray and that CD. It's incredible. Nice. Um, so they did make peace and bring it back together, but they've always been my favorite. And I think it's just that unique style that they did. Like I don't know how to categorize it because it's it's reggae this day, and it's a little bit rock. It's a little bit of a few things that I like, you know, jazz, things like that. I threw one that was just outside the top five. Do you have another one that might be on the fringes, depending on the day and time of life? And yes, such? and it's also maybe moderately controversial. So, you know, you know, glam rock's another thing that's kind of not for everybody, you know, kind of Bowie and things like that. But there's a band in there that I really like, and it's T-Rex. I'm with you. Uh, Mark Bolin died out young. I think he might have been 27, part of the 27 Club. Car accident, actually. But between, uh, you know, albums like Electric Warrior and um, Tanks and The Slider, a really unique sound. And if, if you want to know what that sound is, if you've ever seen Rocky Horror Picture Show and that kind of over-the-top glammy, like, showy thing, that's kind of what their music sounded like. Mm-hmm. But catchy by by all means. Interesting. What about you? Uh, I think I sort of already said it would be Pat Benatar, but depending on the other one, it might be Guns N' Roses. Mm-hmm. Those are definitely in in my wheelhouse mm-hmm. like that's on my playlist mm-hmm. and yeah there's for the g and r bit i liked them growing up like really liked them growing up yeah but the trick with g and r is if you put all of their stuff together they have about two good albums yeah appetite's brilliant like i would argue one of the 10 greatest albums ever i mean that i'm not kidding like okay. ever and then you get to like lies and use your illusion one and two and if you piece together all of that you might be able to scrap another really good album in there yeah a lot of it has to do with izzy leaving but what really also changed that band for me was i read their biography it was written by the same guy that did hammer of the gods um what's his Stephen name davis there you go Stephen yeah. davis watch you bleed mm-hmm. is the name of it it is shocking that that band ever made a single solitary song <laughs> yeah 
So, you know, the CBGBs and the launching of that. Yeah. There's a tie to them that I have to tell the two stories that yeah. I have to tell. Yeah. Uh, Joe Elliott, mm-hmm. Aerosmith. Yeah. You know who his heroin dealer was? Mm-mm. Izzy Stradlin. Oh, wow. Yeah. At CBGB's. Mm. And you know who inspired Axl Rose the most out of everybody? This is a perfect preface for what's coming. Mm. Elton John. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Which I have... No, I mean, think about it. The, yeah. the glam bit, the mm-hmm. flamboyancy. Yeah. But also the musical genius. And I know Axl takes a lot of shit. Mm-hmm. And rightfully so, because he's yeah. certifiable. Yeah. There's no question he's the genius in that band. I know mm-hmm. Slash has some nice things uh, musically, and Izzy was a pretty good songwriter, but it's absolutely Axel's mm-hmm. vehicle. Yeah. And it's also his greatest curse, too, which would not be addiction, sure, yeah. but his insistence on finishing November Rain, that's what ended up ended that band. Mm-hmm. And the last question I want to tell you is... Yeah. Uh, now we'll save that for another day. We'll save a GNR story for another. Okay, day. we're getting into it too much. Here. Yeah, we'll come back to it. We could do music for a whole podcast, couldn't we? Yeah, one band that just real quick that's kind of looking out into that I it's I really am digging right now is the Talking Heads. That's funny that you mentioned them because mm-hmm. the original flight question was most underrated bands, that was and they were going to be one of mine. Yeah, that, that, that is a really good band. If you haven't seen a Stop Making Sense, the John, Jonathan Demi concert film, like add that to your list right now. Can I ask you one question about them? Sure. What's your favorite head song? My favorite head song. We really um, like uh, "This Must Be the Place," naive melody. Because I'm going to go with "And She Was." Okay. Yeah, this must be the place. And that song's been covered so well by so many different bands, too. Mm. Like uh, the Lumineers. Oh! They have a cover of that song on, wow. that, on that main album of theirs. But, yeah. So that's that's that one. By the way, that Hammer of the Gods book is the Zeppelin Bible. Oh, read that, too. That book's insane. <laughs> Change your life. Yes! I've never had to put down a book. Yeah. I had to put down that book and just sort of put it back together thinking, like, are, this is no way that these people are this debaucherous. This is insane. How is this life? <laughs> I mean, like, rock and roll, right? Like, yes. that's kind of a common play. Oh, rock and roll. Not like rock and roll exponentially to the 10th power. Yeah, exactly. Yikers. Excellent. So let's get right to it. Let's get to what we're here for. Let's... Well, here's to your list and to my yeah, list. Yeah, here's to your list. Here's to great music. To great music. I wish we had more of that today. Indeed. Uh, let's get to it. What we're here for, let's get to our breakdown of high fidelity. High Fidelity opens with John Cusack playing the part of Rob Gordon in the middle of a breakup with his girlfriend at the time, Laura, played by, and I might be a little bit off here, but I'll do my best, Ibn Hijale. Yeah, like, I've never seen her in anything before this or since. Like, Interesting. She's beautiful. She is. <laughs> yeah. Two of them are engaged in a breakup, and the breakup is consisting of her not being willing to stick around and him basically burying himself in... Well, in music. Mm-hmm. She's packing. He's got his headphones on and he's listening to some music. They have it out and essentially she packs up her stuff and leaves. Mm-hmm. This launches Rob Gordon yep. into the essential question of this film, which is why does this keep happening? Mm-hmm. And from that point forward, he comes to the brilliant idea of let's revisit the top five breakups of my life mm-hmm. to see if I can't find a common theme into what keep keeps happening, and they're all like 
they're all hilarious. Like they're all so different too. They are. There's two things that are introduced at this point, and one, and that's sort of like what we did in the flight. Mm-hmm. The insistent on making these top five lists, yeah. which is something that you and I do all the time, and everyone does all the time. Yeah. Top five songs to listen to on a Monday morning, which mm-hmm. we'll get to in a few minutes with Jack Black. Yep. Um, top five songs at a funeral, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he has come up with a list or a ranking mm-hmm. of the top five breakups that had the biggest impact on his mm-hmm. life. Also done through his categorizations of music. The John Cusack character, Rob Gordon's also really interesting too, because it's almost like this, like, again, breaking the fourth wall, like mm. we talked about in, in 500 Days of Summer. He's like this narrator kind of guiding the viewer on this on this journey uh, through this um, through the breakups, through his, his kind of day-to-day and his kind of pining to get Laura back. Uh, real quick, though, this film's based on a book. Yep. Uh, the book's set in London. They moved the location of Chicago. Suits Chicago very well, actually. I agree. Um, have you ever read the book? No. Yeah, I have. I haven't either. So I, I wouldn't know if that, like, kind of that narration presence is the kind of mechanism that propels that forward. But I think it works pretty well in this film. It does, and the narrative occurs in the very first scene. So about the time Laura heads out is about the same time that he breaks the fourth wall and includes the audience in the participation of the film. Okay, so downtrodden, beat up, upset. We get some of the backstory on Rob Gordon. And we also come to discover Mm -hmm. that he is the owner of a small, nostalgic Mm -hmm. vinyl company called Championship Vinyl, where they basically sell records to those people that they deem worthy of listening to their records. Yeah, they sell it when they deem it necessary to sell it to somebody. Right, so he's got two fantastic co-workers in there. Mm -hmm. Todd Luizzo plays a guy named Dick, and he's sort of uh, the artist, if you will, a little repressed. Yeah, Uh, Yeah, he's blasting some Bell and Sebastian when he comes into work. And then the other one, too, and I think his best performance in everything he's ever done is Jack Black. Yeah. And uh, Jack Black plays, uh, his name's, um, what the hell's his name in that? Uh, Is it Barry? Barry. Barry. So these three work in this record store, Basically making no money, just sitting around on their and, thrones. And music snobbing like exists, everyone that comes in through the door. As the ruling class of music snobville kingdom, right? Yeah. So uh, we get the introduction of these characters. And in so doing, we also get Rob's introduction to the failed relationships mm-hmm. in his life. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. Is we'll, we'll break each one of these five down now. Sure. We'll four down because the fifth one's a bit of a reveal. But we'll break each one of these four down now. Do you feel like each one of the women that's been in the top five breakups of his life mm-hmm. are represent a representation of the stage of maturation that males go through? I think so. They they all happen at various like yeah like teenage angst adolescence, which would then, be the first one, and that's let's do her first. Yeah. That's Allison Ashmore. Yeah, it's really funny. It was like a, Rob was like her like make out under the bleachers partner for like like. Three days after school before the Rockford Files? Yeah, and then he goes for like day four and then she's like with someone else who we find. Kevin. Kevin, and we find out later that she's married Kevin. Right. And she's, uh, he gets in a real tiff with with her mom on the phone saying like, she's only ever uh, dated Kevin. He's like, no, I was first. Like, and it's so, it's so serious and, and so over the top because it's like 
that child love that was it's like it's three three days or it's so stupid <laughs> but um this is probably a good 35 to 40 minutes of the film and that's him introducing these former quote-unquote loves in his life yeah and showing us just essentially how neurotic he's been yep i think they share a common all three of the protagonists in this cast share a commonality mm-hmm. and that's they're all very neurotic mm-hmm. whether it's Ben Braddock. I, I, I wanted to mention something. I want you to finish that thought too, because I, I made a note here. Okay. The three male protagonists in all three. It's it's interesting. That they're all male protagonists. They're all at like this interesting stage in their lives. I think that all three of them are all very immature too. Certainly. Yeah. There's no question. And it's kind of the way they perceive and view relationships is the problem. Right. Like they got like a wire missing, and then like everything gets misconstrued. Uh, but I noticed that I was like, well, I was like, Rob Gordon fits into this, these protagonists, like really, he's, he's along with them. Like those three guys should go out for drinks. Each of the three, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Each of the three, the immaturity is shown through what career they're eventually going to. Here's the tough word. Yep. Settle on. Mm-hmm. For Rob, what does he want to do? And there's a bit later with Laura when she talks about the top five jobs that he would have had in any time in any era. Yeah. And we come to find out that one of the jobs on the list is in fact his current job. Yeah. And then in the case of 500 days of summer, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Tom, Tom, mm-hmm. Tom Hansen, like deciding to go ahead and go all in and become an architect mm-hmm. and what that means. Yeah. And the case of, I mean, that's literally Ben Braddock's entire story. Yeah. Is he going to get into plastics or is he just going to hang out in the pool or is he going to, you know, get down with Mrs. Robinson? But all of those three things yeah. avoid his future. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's interesting. So, it's it's noteworthy that each of these three guys who can't even figure out something that has the staying power mm-hmm. of their relationship of their career yeah. are trying to find a way to figure out something with the less staying power of trying to control or possess or love or hold whatever you want to say yeah. another thinking rational person who's fallible and human condition mistake ridden like there's no mm-hmm. way that they have mm-hmm. a chance to get it right with these these others yeah because they can't even get themselves right and it might be as simple as maslov's hierarchy of needs go ahead yeah Yeah. we're gonna go no yeah that's all interesting i wanted to mention something real quick before we get too deep into the film Mm -hmm. the film starts a film's got a great soundtrack too Mm -hmm. by the way Mm -hmm. but the film starts out actually with i think a really great song and i don't think it's been used in any other movie and it's you're gonna miss me by the 13th floor elevators it's like psychedelic garage rock band they're just like popping acid in the 60s. This is a great song. I love that the film starts starts to this song. The whole entire soundtrack. is great, yeah. The soundtrack's at It's the Velvet Underground. Mm-hmm. It's a bunch of foreign stuff. I love stuff. that song. Uh, oh, oh, Sweet, sweet nothing. nothing. You oh, and, oh, to that. Uh, yeah. Amen. Yeah. Lou Reed had another great set of vocals too, by the way. That would be another band that's tragically underrated. Mm-hmm. And I know in the in underground New York scene, they're not. Yeah. But the... Freaking Velvet Underground were so good yeah, at that, playing their instruments so bad. I got to tell you, mm-hmm. and we should put that on at some point or for the viewers. I think it's from the 5.15 minute mark in that film mm-hmm. to about the 6 minutes and 45 second mark in that in that song. Film yeah. in that song, Oh Sweet Nothing. Mm-hmm. Sit down, turn it up loud, yeah. and just let your face get rocked yeah, it's in good. that song. Yeah. Oh man, that's a great mm-hmm. song. I love its inclusion here. Yeah. But yeah, so Rob kind of like, he starts, he, he's got all these different breakups and he's trying to kind of see, well, what went wrong and what, what what happened here and trying to piece everything together. But um, 
Yeah, they're, they're they're all very interesting. And so so number two, do you have the the, the name of number two? I had a, I had a hard time remembering everyone's names in this film. That's funny because usually when it comes to names, it's not me. It's it's you that. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Number two is Penny Hardwick. Okay, yeah. So the story with Penny Hardwick is we're post Alice Nashville. We've grown up. We're like sophomore, juniorish in high school, mm-hmm. and he's tackling the intimacy issue and how far she's willing to let him go. She's yeah. actually terrific. Mm-hmm. She's beautiful. She's smart. Yeah. She's just not quite ready yeah. to go all the way with him. Mm-hmm. And that eventually is what leads him to dump her. Uh, there's a line in there when he says something about we had discovered women's breasts and we were trying to annex them from their, you know, this whole, this mm-hmm. whole bit. And we get the scene of him trying to, you know, get to second base or third base with her and her shielding him off. Yeah. Yeah, so he, he dumps her. He dumps her. <laughs> he finds out like the next week that this guy slept with her. And, like after a thing, he's like, are you serious? Like, <laughs> Into the sad thing about that, mm-hmm. or maybe not the sad thing, but the, the crux of Rob Gordon's problems is, is he makes that about himself. Yep. Why him and not me? Not to come to find out later that it wasn't too far from rape yeah. as she sedates. Yeah. But instead, it's about, and this is it, Rob's yeah. selfishness. It's, it's kind of douchey, too. He <laughs> is. Well, I mean, even his record store is kind of douchey and selfish. Yeah, yeah. Just kind of shunning, like, the the the, the, the non-cultured... Holier than thou. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, the record store and cassette aficionados. So then we get to number three. Yeah, her name is Charlie Nicholson, played yeah. by Catherine Zeta-Jones. Yes. She's an interesting one. She is sort of... The op, or the exact match of what he is, mm-hmm. kind of arty in her own way, a little bit like highfalutin, a little too highbrow with the like the crit, like you, you know what I'm talking about, and super just generally bitchy, mm-hmm. judgmental, and he sort of puts her on this pedestal of being very knowledgeable and wise because at that at that stage in his life, the two years they spend together, yeah. He thinks what she says has has reverence yeah. and is important. Now, we come to find out later that she's not. She's just a horrible, 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 self-righteous bitch. Yeah, but he's, like, intimidated by her, though. Right. He, he felt like he never measures up. And he, yeah, he, I think he even says one thing. He's like, how, how would I ever, like, make love to, like, this woman? Like, I feel like, like I'm not prepared for that. Okay, so let's measure this out now. We're yeah. three in, and we've got just learning how it all works behind the bleachers. Yep. Have you been there? Behind the bleachers? No, but you know what I mean. Like that stage in your life. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah, well, and then number two, like... There weren't bleachers. <laughs> <laughs> they, oh, maybe there's a story here, Jesse. That's Where so were nine, they? <laughs> the bleachers are so 1980s. Okay, well, it, just like him, right? Yep. Okay, so the second one would then be, how far do I take this? And yeah. figuring out that whole thing. Yeah. You've been there. Mm-hmm. We all have. Third one is, am I able to not punch outside of my weight class mm-hmm. or am i out kicking my coverage yep. to clay travis on this one yeah um catherine zeta jones been there yeah catherine zeta jones is like a 10 rob gordon's like a, like a 6.5 or maybe a seven. well you know what the truth is you and i both out kicked our coverage on this one didn't we there we go so our better go. halves there way we out kicked our coverage there we go and then uh, of course, she leaves him for a shinier version of a better guy, yep, and yep. he's sitting there in the rain yelling at her at the window, Charlie, you fucking bitch, let's work it out, <laughs> yep, right? Just, yeah. And we're recognizing what a complete neurotic weirdo he is. Mm-hmm. And then we get the fourth one, and this is this is Rebound, mm-hmm. Sarah Kendrew. Lily Taylor? Lily Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, essentially, they just share their morosity together and have a nice warm bed and a body to lay next to. Mm-hmm. And then she dumps him. So we get a lineage of these four women. Now, there's going to be a fifth one. And I don't even remember if we ever actually get the fifth one from him because it's actually going to be Laura Mm -hmm. eventually. Mm -hmm. 
But we understand that each one of these women has dumped him, and he thinks that there's some grand design to yeah. why this is happening. And in fact, there isn't, is yeah. there? It's just life, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just life. Mm-hmm. Are you sure that you didn't really want to spend the rest of your life with Allison Ashmore? Probably not. Yeah. And we're going to come to find out later, especially in the case of Charlie Nicholson. Mm-hmm. Definitely not. No, thank you. Don't care how good looking Catherine Zeta-Jones Exactly. <laughs> now, the miss, especially for you and me, mm-hmm. might have been Penny Hardwick because she grows up to be a film critic. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Yeah. And she seems pretty pretty, pretty lovely. Yeah. And okay, I- so after, after we get introduced to all of these women, mm-hmm. then he goes about the task of... From by with help from Bruce, Bruce Springsteen. Oh, this is great. I I love this kind of like little kind of like like the, again the fourth wall breaking. It's like you know we talk about you know filmmaking techniques and Five Hundred Days of Summer did this expertly. You know it's 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 done here very well too. Yeah, where he's talking about like all oh, the five. Like I wish I could go just like see them all and kind of see how it all went wrong. <laughs> Bruce is why don't you go do it, man? <laughs> like and he's just like he's like it'll be good for them. No, it'll be won't be good for them, but it'll be good for you. And then mm-hmm. you just take it, put it into that top five on top five list and sail right on down the line or some line like that. Yeah, like and Br- it's Bruce Springsteen yeah. talking to Rob Gordon. Do you like the boss? Uh it would. I don't know. Yeah. Yes and no. I do. Okay. I do. I'm glad you do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Bruce Springsteen's like his inner conscience, and it actually sets him forth on this really interesting quest. And I actually kind of wish if there's like like some fault to this film that I kind of noticed watching it this time was mm-hmm. I wish there was the more of the film was about this this kind of going back and questing and trying to figure out where it all went wrong because there could have been a lot more comedy there. Um, and they spent some decent time on it. I I just feel like they could have done more with it. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. What Rob fails to miss in each of these four breakups, though, is the consistent theme or the grand design that keeps leading to the demise of these relationships Mm -hmm. is him. Yeah. Laura's the one that points that out. So in between the introduction of these exes to us, we get another introduction of another woman. And we've come to discover that Rob is a straight womanizer. And Mm -hmm. it's actually... A character named Marie DeSalle, played by Lisa Bonet. Mm -hmm. Brilliantly played by Lisa Bonet. There's a funny little in-joke there, too, where, like, Jack Black makes fun of him. He's like, where'd you get that? It's It's like a a Cosby sweater. Cosby sweater. And Lisa Bonet, of course, was on the Cosby show. So Rob (laughs) instantly falls for Lisa Bonet, namely because she's gorgeous in Mm -hmm, this film. mm -hmm. And secondly, because she's covering Ooh Baby I Love Your Way by Peter Frampton. Yep. In a way that's actually better than fucking Peter fucking Frampton, they, as Rob Gordon they says. They even said, like, like, oh my god, like I usually hate this song. But I kind of love it. And mm-hmm. he's there with Jack Black and Todd Luiso, Dick yep. and, and Barry. Yeah. I kind of love it. Yeah. She's kind of gorgeous. Yeah. So, like, mm-hmm. they are smitten with her. Yep. And we also get a really great moment where... As they're talking about dating a musician, we both get what, or we get what both of them think it would be to really be in a relationship. And in the case of Dick, he just wants to be mentioned somewhere in the liner notes or like in the picture of a guy in the back. Yeah. And then Jack Black's character, Barry, wants some anecdotal reference in some lyric. It's And it's, yeah. and you know what all that is? Yeah. It's just nostalgia mm-hmm. as like the reverent look at nostalgia. Yeah. Which also <clears throat> to this cast, and maybe that's why we chose this. Yeah. Harkens back not only to the music from The Graduate, because it is nostalgic, Definitely. but also Tom's whole shtick. Mm-hmm. Like the whole thing between Tom and Summer in the elevator was, the oh Smiths. my gosh, we both like the Smiths. Exactly. Everyone likes the Smiths mm-hmm. at that time. There's been a real interesting music through line through these last three films. Indeed. 
Okay, so uh, we get, like I said, the murdering of Marie DeSalle, and they invite her to come visit Championship Vinyl and mm-hmm. maybe sign albums or whatever it might be. Oh, they're playing one of her songs, too, like over the on the overhead speaker. And she's like, she's like, he's like, oh, I'll go turn this off. She's like, no, keep playing it. Like, it's, it's, it's good. Yeah. So through the uncovering of these relationships, we sort of get the backstory in Rob and Laura, too. Mm-hmm. And we come to find out that there are three monumental moments up to this breakup that we are now exposed to. Number one, he sleeps around on her. Mm-hmm. Number two, he borrows five grand from her mm-hmm. and has yet to repay it at yeah. this point in the film. And number three, that she's pregnant when he sleeps around on her and that is what leads to her from her mouth of wanting to have an abortion. At that point, is Tom like... A, a, a Tom Rob. Rob, yeah. Is he like a redeemable protagonist at this point right and he's just like a lot of awful qualities you kind of sit there looking at him like you're wallowing in your own self-misery and it's completely self-induced yes like you said he's kind of douchey yeah and if it wasn't for the snobbery Mm -hmm. and the relatability of these top five lists that we keep making yeah then yeah he would pretty be pretty irredeemable yeah okay um at this point, I think we're about halfway through the film, mm-hmm. and we start to get the reemergence of the girls from the past. Mm-hmm. So you already mentioned it. We never actually see the older Allison Ashmore. We mm-hmm. do get a conversation on the phone with Allison's mother, yeah. where she informs Rob that he that Allison married Kevin, mm-hmm. which is who Allison left Rob for. <laughs> yes. So he feels good about that because yeah. well, he lost to the guy that eventually married her. So. A closure, yeah, but that's a win for me. No frame of reference to what the grand design on the breakups was. Exactly. Then he actually kind of goes on a pseudo date, yeah, with Penny, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they go to watch a movie, and she's taking some notes in the film, and then we get the idea that she actually really did like Rob, mm-hmm. and that when he left her, she was heartbroken, and the reason that she had sex with this other guy was because she was too tired to fight him off and just said, what the hell, I'm going to let it happen. Mostly out of rebound remorse. Mm-hmm. And somehow, this is also to his like dislikability, he feels good about that? Yeah. He does. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then we don't get a whole lot. We're going to get Charlie in a few minutes, but we don't get a whole lot more on that regard. Yeah. In between all this, Laura, the most recent ex, keeps showing up at the apartment yeah. to kind of pick up her stuff. And he sort of says to her, why do you keep showing up? Yeah. What's the state of the relationship at this point between them, Jesse? Like, I don't know. What is that? It's weird. It's what it is. It's like, right. she's curious. Or like, like, did me leaving like evoke any type of emotional response out of you? But like, it's really damaging to a guy like Rob too, because he, she's giving him a window back into that life. Then we learned about the 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 the, the, the guy, the guy living up there, Ian. Raymond. I Ray yeah. Ian yeah. Raymond, yeah. played by Tim Robbins. <laughs> by Tim Robbins. Yeah. <laughs> so we've been introduced to him though, right? Yep. Because there's a scene in the film where we're watching Rob and Laura in a happier state in the relationship. Reading, in bed. Reading. Post-coital. Reading. Reading or something. <laughs> yeah. And they're listening to him just give somebody hell upstairs. <laughs> yes. And he kind of makes a joke like, boy, he sure goes on long enough. And yeah. Laura kiddingly says, I should be so lucky. Yeah. And we kind of get the idea that he's this... A sexual dynamo? The sexual god? Like, yeah. But we're going to meet him and he's anything but. Yeah. Talk about douchey. Yeah, he's a doof. A sensitive doof. ponytail man. Yep. Stolen from Cameron Crow and singles. Yep. Uh, okay, so let's move on then to the third closure in 
the girls, which is the Lily Taylor character. She basically is still stuck in the same pathetic state that she was. (laughs) And they kind of, I think they go and have a bite to eat or something. And she tries to invite him back into her apartment. Mm -hmm. And we do see the first redeemable moment for me in the entire film for Rob. Yeah. Here's this sad, lonely thing. And she's inviting him in to kind of replay the past. Mm -hmm. And he tells her no. Yeah. And he says, I just can't do it essentially because it reminds me of what we used to be. And it's me taking advantage of it. Ah, that sounds a little bit like maturity, doesn't it? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so his pursuit of Laura continues. And then we get the introduction of Laura's best friend and his good friend, played by his sister, Joan Cusack. Cusack, yes. And... She's kind of told him a few times exactly what she thinks about him, and she's not entirely pleased with yeah. Rob because Laura at this point has told her these are the terrible things that he did to me. Yeah. But nonetheless, she says, you know, you've got to be real careful because you're about to create a bond between the two of these people that won't be broken because you're acting so stalkerly. Yep. I got to tell you, I think there's probably times in my life with breakups. Yeah. I don't want to say that I've been stalkerly, yeah. but... Jones and pretty hard and wondering about it. Yeah. So I wonder that... who they're talking to. I wonder if they're seeing anybody or this and that. Yeah. Well, now there's Facebook now. That makes it a little easier. You don't have to drive by. You can just you use Facebook. <laughs> that's wrong. You just you just sneak in on the Facebook. They call that. That's why there's a term that's called Facebook stalking. That's like a thing. Now the making of a good compilation tape is a very subtle art. Many do's and don'ts. First of all, you're using someone else's poetry to express how you feel. This is a delicate thing. So for this one, I'm thinking. I'm thinking. When is this going to stop? So at this point in the film, Jesse, I guess my question for you is about Rob. Are we seeing any maturity or any growth or any hope for him yet? A little bit. He's got a ways to go still. I think of any of the three protagonist we've dealt with like he's got a lot of room to like fix the shit in his life yeah so he's he's making some he's making strides but like he's he's got he's got a way to the finish line sure but one of the scenes i really like in this film is actually when they have like their saturday like record store day and it's like obscenely like packed for some reason for as 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 assholey as these uh employees are in this store to turn off everybody um they got a pretty decent amount of traffic here on Saturday morning. Yeah. Um, but then there are... Um, a lot of people out there looking for deleted Smith singles. And yeah, exactly. B-side imports of yeah. Licorice Confidence or whoever. Which, by the way, is a made-up band. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, that's pretty fun. That's a good name, actually. Yeah. Uh, but then they get shoplifted by these two, like, skater hooligans. Yeah. And they're like, what are you guys stealing? What are you doing this? These hooligans come back into it later when, like, you know, like Rob, like, like trips all over, comes trips all over their skate ramps and everything, and comes back into his shop one morning, and they're playing some music. He's like, he's like, what is this? Like, he's like, he's like, it's those little guys, it's those guys, the skaters out out there. What's their name, Matt? The Kinky Wizards. That's yeah, another great name <laughs> for a band. And he goes out there and like, again, okay, talking about Rob's maturity of like having some type of path in life. He's like. He's like, he's like, he's like, he's like, I'll, I'll, pro- I'll produce, produce this. And like, he, he makes some sort of like little deal with them and he calls it top five, top albums. five, top five albums. Yeah. That's going to be like his label, which is perfect for him. Like the whole time in between all of this, they've been doing top five, everything like 
top five like like intros on like an album or like top five like songs you want played at your funeral or top five crimes associated with Stevie Wonder in, in the seventy in the seventies and eighties. But a side question is, is it better to burn out than to fade away? Yes. Yeah. No, Jack Black's Jack Black's really good. Jack Black has a certain shtick that could come off as irritating in like most of his movies like i really like him in this i love him in tropic thunder oh, yeah. i really like him there's this kind of a guilty pleasure it's not a great film but i really like it it's a film called saving silverman yeah jason biggs and steve zahn yeah amanda pete yeah it's same thing too yeah in doses where he's controlled yes he's great perfect as this 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 is the role he's like he I feel can be the same, as creative I, as he wants with tenacious d and all that and there's some great i feel things. the same way about will ferrell too i think will ferrell in like doses is like yeah. comedic genius but it's a problem because he headlines the entire movie and it's just too much for me i just can't handle it shake your bake he was genius on saturday night live when it was a little five minute increments jesse can i ask you a question go ahead how do you turn the radio and the tv on at the same time in your house <laughs> yeah i don't know why do you let him do that i like to party <laughs> yeah like that kind of stuff right yeah yeah, yeah. to will ferrell yep uh, was that talladega nights yep Okay, so these little two skate Nazis, I think, is what Rob calls them, mm-hmm. basically have ripped him off like some really interesting independent 6'6 Sputnik and yeah. how to record in your own home studio. Yeah. And Rob's a little bit puzzled saying, like, what are you guys mm-hmm. jamming to, you know, Joni Mitchell? And they're like, who are you to think that you know so much about music? And he's like, who are you guys? And we sort of get yeah. in basically a foiled shoplifting attempt. Mm-hmm. A creation of possibility mentorship role. Aha. So here we go, right? If Rob's going to mentor these two, then he's going to have to be mature enough to launch a record label. Mm -hmm. Now that's going to play out big later. Mm -hmm. But right now, uh, Mm -hmm. let's get back to Laura. Yeah. So he heads home from this. Actually, I think he closes the shop that night and Laura meets him outside. Mm -hmm. And she needs to go home and pick up the last few things of her possessions. Mm Mm-hmm. And as they go back to his apartment, they have a pretty interesting discussion. Mm-hmm. And he asks her at that point if she and Ian, who he has now discovered the guy upstairs yes. by basically stealing his mail. Yeah, stalking. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. have had sex yet. Yeah. And she says, we haven't had sex yet. And so the celebration goes off mm-hmm. because... They haven't consummated their union or whatever Rob wants to say. Yeah. And she also gives him a little bit of light and says that there's a 10% chance that they're going to get back to school. Yeah. Or get back get back to school. Get back, to, get back together. Mm-hmm. Here's why I asked you that question. Okay. So this is a moment of celebration for Rob. Mm-hmm. Like maybe there's hope. Yeah. And they actually don't have a fight when she leaves. 10% chance. Mm-hmm. So you're saying there's a chance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's the next thing he does? He goes right out and sleeps with Marie DeSalle mm-hmm. in a really well-handled scene, mm-hmm. by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, picks her up. They have a nice conversation at the bar. They go home and X, Y, and Z happens. We get nothing. They don't show anything. But he's he's like, how did this happen? That's like the question on like the tip of his tongue. Basically, says, how does somebody that's in this zip code score somebody from that zip code? And mm-hmm. he basically just shrugs it off and says... I'm disaffected and it's worked for a long time. Yep. Here's what I also like about that. That fourth wall that you've been talking about comes mm-hmm, down mm-hmm. and he mentions a song by Charlie Rich behind closed doors. So as to not, maybe this is saving some of the douchiness from him. Yeah. 
so as to not give us the blow-by-blow, play-by-play details of what happened between him and Marie DeSalle. He basically just says, she was fantastic. Mm -hmm. We had a really good time. I'm not going to give you anything more. Mm -hmm. The problem is it's not done out of morality. It's done more out of homage to some song that he happens to like. Mm -hmm. Like Rob eventually in this movie is going to have to be his own guy. And here's the key. Yeah. Create something himself. Yeah. Instead of living and coattailing off of all the artists that he idolizes. And the skate Nazis are kind of giving him a way to do so. Isn't that weird? It's very weird. But also brilliant. Yeah. These two kids that just look like complete derelicts. Yeah. This director, Stephen Freer, is like, what what else has he done? Do you know? Nothing. Yeah. (laughs) This film. Yeah. Literally this. This film. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, It's really interesting. So then Rob eventually gets to meet the all uh, sexual goddess Ian. And I think of God. Yes. Yeah, did I say goddess? Might yeah. as well be. Yeah. Tim Rob is, is, yeah, just yeah, with the ponytail and everything. And I think a really a, a cool scene too. And I wish films and stuff did this more. And I love when they do it. It's kind of like the, the imaginatory scenario of how things play out. So he comes in, he's like, he's like, he's like, Rob, he's like, we're adults. He's like, he's like, can you just, you know, like, I'm with Laura. Like, can you just kind of let it be? Are we good now? Like, he's like, he's like oh, yeah, we're good. You take your patchouli ass out of here. <laughs> and that's one version. And then so it starts over again. Like, it, like, rewinds. And he's like, oh, you're like, oh, that's good. Like, are we good, Rob? Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> he smashes him with the cash stand. Yes. And then, then one more time, like, oh, are we good? And then, like, his buddies get on and they, they, and they do it. And But that none of that happens. Right is the thing. It's like these like in your head scenarios. Yeah, I, I love when the film plays loose with like 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 reality and like how it actually plays. Again, out. it's playing with that fourth wall in a very clever way. Right. Mm-hmm. I think you and I both really like that. Yes, if done well. It done well. I think that's I think that's the key. I think it come across as a bit obnoxious and a little too self referential. Yeah. But I think when it's uh, you know playing within the confines of the story, I think it, it it's a nice mechanism that doesn't get used often. Let's just say that. So he and Laura at this point are not back together. Mm-hmm. The Marie DeSalle shtick was just a one-night deal. Mm-hmm. And guess who shows back up? Charlie. Yes. She calls him, and he goes to visit her, basically on the with the understanding that they won't do what happened in the past. Mm-hmm. So he goes and has this dinner party. <laughs> he goes to oh wine and charcuterie night. <laughs> yeah. And it's awful. Yeah, it's like the worst night of his life. And he just is sitting there listening to Charlie, and he realizes Charlie's stupid. She talks shit all night long. Mm-hmm. She says ridiculous things. And he realizes the woman that once upon a time that he idolized mm-hmm. was awful. Well, here's the thing, too. Here's something I really noticed. And it's, you know, kind of any type of, like, closure of, like, staying the night or sleeping with her. Kind of like when the last guest leaves and she's and, and he's the only one there. When she comes back, she, like, grabs ah, him. Ah, jelly bean. Yeah, and she brings him his coat and kind of, like, slumps it over the... Almost like a thing or like... Get out. Okay, you need to leave now. You're next. So she's not into it either, is the thing. It's so, like, right. And he has that line, which is, So, Charlie, why'd you dump me for Marco? And she goes into this self-righteous... Mm-hmm. Yeah. I knew it. I knew... And you're just, like, thinking yeah. to yourself, Man, thank God that one got away. <laughs> Because she's, I mean, she's gorgeous. Yeah. Catherine Zeta-Jones is a beautiful woman. Yes. News to nobody. Yeah. Captain Obvious with the podcast. Yeah. But she's awful. Yeah. And he realizes as he walks out, like, man, thank God. Mm -hmm. So now we're through the four. And we've also, at this point, come to the conclusion that number five on the list was actually Laura. Mm -hmm. He finally gives in and admits, like, you were with a bullet. Top five on the list 
of the women who broke my heart. Yeah. Okay, so maybe that's a step in growth of maturity, mm-hmm. recognizing that the relationship had more value and stop being such a baby about being dumped and be honest. Yeah. But nonetheless, at least the Charlie thing is gone. So of these four, yeah. man, only one was really a keeper, right? Yeah. Allison. Mm-hmm. Was that her name, Allison? Yeah. No, Penny. Allison's first one, Penny. Penny's number two. Yeah, Penny with The Penny. film credit, mm-hmm. Penny. Mm-hmm. So where does that leave Rob with Laura? In flux. But then the kind of the, the next window back into this whole thing is uh, he gets a call and he finds out that um, that her, dad's, her dad's passed away. Yeah. And he's like, do you mind kind of coming to the, the services, the funeral? Because my dad, he always really liked you. So that's the thing, too, is that like with Rob's parents, because he has a conversation with his mom earlier earlier in the film. Yeah, she's pretty hard on him. And then this and that. Like, I think they both really like how this relationship is. I think Laura knows mm-hmm. in Rob that there's a decent guy in there. Yeah. And especially having been with Ian, mm-hmm. what a total nightmare patchouli world smelling. global music listening. Have you ever smelled patchouli oil? Good God, yes. It's awful. It is, yes. His little man ponytail. Mm-hmm. And he, he's a total, like, straight douchebag. Yeah. She realizes that Rob is a possibility still. Yeah. And I think that's why, and he actually calls her out on that. I think it's funny that you keep showing back up in my apartment Mm -hmm. because she's hanging on, isn't she? Yeah. So, yeah, he goes to the funeral Mm -hmm. and he's actually a pretty good human being. Yeah. Again, breaks the fourth wall again during the eulogy, says top five songs I want to be at my funeral. At my funeral and this and that. And one of them is, uh, I I can't even remember, there are too many. Yeah. Um, But that's actually preceded by Dick and Todd's version of. Uh, the Night Chicago Died and Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald and their own version of that's a gr- I love that song actually. Oh, Edmund Fitzgerald? Yes. Okay, I'm not going to be too shy to admit like Gordon Lightfoot's got a bunch of really good stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Sundown? Yeah. Oh man, mm-hmm. come on. Yeah. I'm with you. Gord's Gold, check it out. Gordon Lightfoot or Cat Stevens? Oh, Gordon Lightfoot by a mile. Okay. <laughs> that's really? <laughs> that's like the Chicago Burrows or the Eldorado 1986 girls C-team C basketball oh, that's squad. Hilarious. I mean, are you kidding me? Okay. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> no. So he goes in and then it's just kind of that window kind of back in because, you know, he, he drives her home and they end up, you know, having sex in the car. But, um, well, you know what's, well, okay. Go yeah, ahead. I, I don't want to stop you here, but there's yeah. a really important part. Yeah. He's sitting there. And it's raining, mm-hmm. and he's basically left the funeral because he gets into a fight with his sister, Laura's friend, again. And she basically says, yeah. we're not here for you, Rob. We're here for Laura, so stop talking about yourself. Yeah. And he heads out, and he's just sitting kind of on this bench, and Laura drives by in the car, and he tries to hide, and he falls in the mud. And I love that. This is my, I'm bringing this up because it's one of my two favorite scenes in the movie. Yeah. She basically says, what are you doing? He's like, I'm just sitting here. She's like, you look like an idiot. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, I just didn't want to make a scene at the wedding. She's like, well, I appreciate you coming. Get in the car. Mm -hmm. And she just straddles him. Yeah. And she is, how can I say this? She is full woman at this point to Mm -hmm. me. She's completely in charge Mm -hmm. of her faculties Mm -hmm. and her sexual power. And she's not at all reserved. She's just, she's a really remarkable woman at Mm -hmm. this point. Mm -hmm. And he says, why are you doing this? And she says... I just want to feel something different. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting about that is she does it at a time with him, not Ian, mm-hmm. with him. Yeah. And guess what? They're back together. Exactly. Yeah. 
But then uh, we're not so, done yet, though. Yeah, no, yeah, we're not done yet. So they keep progressing here, and you know the wet record store bid, and then he sees these flyers for this, you know the the wizards. Okay, so Rob used to be a DJ, and yeah. that's how he met Laura. Laura, mm-hmm. and so she, I love her, man. Yeah, she puts together this evening that's going to be a night with Rob Gordon. Yeah, that's him spinning, mm-hmm. and a launch party for the Kinky Wizards. Yeah initial album yeah and it's done under his record label which is called top, top five. five records yeah which is perfect so there's yeah. a scene in here that though that that's that's, that's really interesting it's kind of like a, a conundrum of sorts and maybe it kind of speaks to maybe how i kind of like the ending of this film but then i kind of don't which is this this music uh this person writing an editorial kind of shows up in, into tom's life wanting to to kind of write this piece. Carolyn Fordyce, played by Natasha yeah. Gregson Wagner. That's yeah. Natalie Wood's daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, Tom, or I keep saying Tom Hansen. No, Rob Gordon. It's funny. Because it it's interesting. Three, it's yeah. three letters and it's Ben, B E N. Oh, it's like. It's not <laughs> yeah. a Freudian slip. It's because they're the same character. They're the same character. All three of them are the same guy, aren't they? Yep. Wow. Uh, Epiphany. He, he's kind of a little smitten with, with her a bit. Like to the point where okay, I gotta ask you, Matt. Now at this point, like he makes her a compilation tape, and he kind of goes into this whole bit about like there's an art to great compilation tape. If we went out of our way to like make a compilation tape, like there's like a lot of like sentiment and art that goes into something like you pick specific songs to evoke certain emotions. Yep, that's hard to do. You know, it's like if you're dating somebody, you know what I mean. That's almost like you're trying to. Push it's your- a pass. Let's be honest. It's a pass. Yes. And as he's at home, okay, so she writes essentially for what's like the Village Voice yes, in yes. Chicago. I forget what the name of the record, the print publication is, but it's essentially it's the Village Voice. Yeah, and she's a music review mm-hmm. critique mm-hmm. gal. And he, I mean, she's a nice looking woman. Yeah, and just like Rob, he's smitten. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe uh, smitten might be. A t- he's interested. Yeah. So he goes home, and like Laura has moved back in, so yeah. they're on really good terms. Yeah. He shouldn't be interested at this point is what I'm saying. And she walks in to find him making a compilation tape Mm -hmm. for her. And what I also, again, why I also love her in this film, Mm -hmm. instead of freaking out, throwing cucumbers at him, she's like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And then we cut from that to the scene in the bar when he proposes to Laura. Mm -hmm. And she turns him down. Yeah. And he basically says... The truth is, Laura, I've chased... This is also similar to 500 Days of Summer with yeah. the testimonial that's in black and white mm-hmm. about the woman in my dreams has a bigger rack and is into sports, but mostly I like Robin because she's real. This is the same version of that, yeah. which is him saying, what I've come to realize is the fantasy never delivers. They've got tiger-striped underwear, and they're hot, and all these things. And Laura's like, well, I can be those things. So he's like, I know, but you're real. Mm-hmm. You're not a fantasy. And the fantasy never delivers. And she kind of sees that it's happening. Mm-hmm. Can I have it then? No. No, you can't. Why not? Well, it's sentimental, tacky crap. That's why not. Do we look like the kind of store that sells I just called to say I love you? Go to the mall. What's your problem? Do you even know your daughter? There's no way she likes that song. Oh, oh, oh. Is she in a coma? Oh, okay, buddy. I didn't know it was pick on the middle-aged square guy day. My apologies. I'll be on my way. Bye-bye. Let's go ahead and get to the end, yeah? So Laura tells him no, they're not going to get married, but they are going to be together. And we jump to the launch party, which is 
him spinning, <laughs> Jack Black's band performing, a really nice version of him doing Let's Get It On by Marvin. Yeah, Gale. really good. Really solid, yeah. actually, vocal performance, as yes. weird as that is. And the Kinky Wizards kind of techno, hip-hop, industrial, whatever that music is. Yeah. And the thing we come to realize is that Rob has, the critic has traversed the cavern of elitism mm -hmm. to the vulnerability of creator. Yeah. Yeah. And he's producing this thing as top five records and the place is just packed. Mm -hmm. He's back spinning. Laura's there in all her glory. Mm -hmm. Carolyn Fordyce is there and he's not trying to get her in the sack. Yeah. The kinky wizard is there stealing something from behind the, the bandstand. They're, they're underage too. They shouldn't even be in the bar right? either. Yeah. These two burgeoning criminals. Yep. If anybody tells the, yeah, it's awesome. Mm -hmm. And then we get to the final sequence, which is, I guess that has been a stunning success. Mm -hmm. And we see Rob sitting there in the quiet solitude of music where he's most comfortable mm -hmm. making another compilation tape. Mm -hmm. But for who? Laura. For Laura. Yeah. So that's that, that, that's pretty good. He does mature a bit along the ways. I guess my just biggest crux with, you know, by the time I reach the end of this film is just kind of wondering, like, and I know the answer, too. I, Laura is too good for him. And, you know, kind of... I don't know. Maybe I maybe he had wished they didn't end up back together in this extent, but I, he does kind of need that in order to fully mature. So it's needed. It is needed, and as much as she might be too good for him, mm -hmm. <sighs> yes. But also, look what else was available to her. Mm -hmm. I mean, if she decided to give Tim Robbins as Raymond, I Raymond, Ian Raymond a shot, yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe she just, it's not about looks. Maybe it's about the creativity yeah. of him. Mm -hmm. But regardless, I think they're on a much better footing than they were. Mm -hmm. And he's grown up. Yeah. As the producer, not the critic. It's, look, what you and I do here is sort of similar to that. Yeah, yeah. It's easy to be the critic. Oh, yeah. It's easy to take, well, it's not easy. It's maybe, well, a little bit easy. Mm-hmm. To take somebody's work mm -hmm. and break it down for its faults. Yeah. It's much harder to create something and offer it up for criticism. And you know I've been down that road too. We've yeah. had plenty of scripts that were passed on you. Yeah. Yeah. Or never read after promises of being read. Yeah. Or Wick Godfrey or whatever it might be. <laughs> Let's not even get me started. Yep. We might have some pretty interesting news about that in a couple of weeks. Huh? Yep. Or before too long. Exactly. Teaser. Yep. All right. So... Should we get into our final rankings of this film then? Yeah, let's do that. And let's remind the listeners a little bit about our system, all based around, you know, uh, the whiskey, the bourbon, and, and liquor. So, you know, we have Rock Gut, we have Well, we have Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. So, Matt, where's this clocking in for you? Uh, ba -ba -ba -ba. Call Plus. I really thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Mm -hmm. It's not a perfect film. Yeah, uh, I love the music. Mm -hmm. I think we talked about my, you know, affinity for the soundtrack a few weeks oh, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good one. I'm not the biggest John Cusack fan in the world. I do like him. John Cusack almost, almost ventures into Clive Owen territory for me. Not quite though. Well, you have a thing against Clive Owen, too. Yeah, well, so what does that mean? Break that down for me. What do you mean by that? I don't know. Clive Owen just got like this kind of self-referential kind of thing. I think it all stemmed from like everyone wanted him to play James Bond just because he had the look. Hell and yes. I was, and I was like, yeah, the look's one thing. 
But like bringing it all home and embodying the character is something totally different. I'm kind of glad they actually went with Daniel Craig when, when they were kind of talking about all that. Um, we'll talk about James Bond another day. But like it all stems from that. He was like kind of the shoe-in just based on look. But like a lot of his films other than Children of Men, which I really love Children of Men. Oh, yeah. I don't know. It's just like, yeah, he, he kind of just rubs me the wrong way. But it's not it's the Clive Owen podcast. We'll talk about him another day. Well, can I ask you a question? Because it sort of ties into Mike Nichols. Yeah. You know, essentially his follow-up to The Graduate was Closer. Mm-hmm. Did you hate him in Closer? I don't love Closer. I don't I, love that movie either. Yeah. I think the scene, though, in the club with Natalie Portman as a stripper with him and her is pretty brilliant, mm-hmm. though. Okay, anyway, we're sort of getting off on a tangent here. Call Plus. Okay. Uh, it's just short of being being single barrel. Sure. I For me, like, and I've talked about this before, single barrel has an element of uniqueness to it. This does, mm-hmm. but it's unique in that it's really well done in a style of film that I don't think was brand new. Yeah. This is singles. This is reality bites. Yeah. This is say anything. Mm-hmm. Like the Gen X film with a soundtrack that I like that's a, even, even 500 days to a certain extent. Sure. Well, even The Graduate. I know that's not Gen X, but... Yeah. Um, actually just outside the actual beginning of Gen X mm-hmm. 67 is when Gen X started mm-hmm. what's the graduate 63? 7 oh so it is okay so yeah. by definition it is a Gen X film yep. as far as being released yep there's not a moment that I want to turn it off uh, mm-hmm. I love the final song in the movie by Stevie Wonder mm-hmm. also really close to my top 5 okay. I love Stevie oh, Wonder oh yeah he's great you know that yeah we listen to him quite a bit when we write mm-hmm yeah, I don't know. That's where I'm at. I mean, I I think I've I've given a pretty shining review of this film. Sure, yeah, and you know I think you know kind of where I clock in too. I'm probably at a at a call plus like single barrel minus with this yeah, one. Yeah, I think it's the the least unique of the three films in this cast, but Certainly. still has an amazing soundtrack. I think some great performances by all involved, and again, I think. Some great breaking of the fourth wall and playing with traditional storytelling mechanisms that, you know, filmmakers and writers just, they just don't do that all the time. So I really like that at play here. It is brilliantly written. Yeah. And I really like, I, I just wish there was more of that top five. I wish there was more of that kind of going back to the past to kind of like, you know, fix my, my, my future. What is this, Endgame? <laughs> anyway. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, I, I, I wish I just had a little bit more of that and, you know, just kind of the way I kind of see story playing out, you know, kind of seeing like maybe a different turn of the ending. But I, I like the little just side nods. I love that Bruce Springsteen cameo. I love, you know, just how kind of uh, uh, almost douchey that like all this record store is just kind of shunning. There's another great bit where Jack Black kind of like this like middle-aged like dad is trying to shop for this album first he's like you even know your daughter like i just called to say i love you yeah go 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 to the mall like that's at the mall yeah he's like even if i had it i wouldn't sell it to him they're just they're they're really snobby what does this pick on the middle-aged white guy day exactly yeah but and like that's interesting too because like both film and music are things that like people can be snobby about like Ooh, I only like uh, uh, Francois Truffaut. Francois yeah. Truffaut's uh, I, I, the Four Hundred Bullets and Jules and Jim. Those are amazing films. But like, like you know that type of person. Like I only, yes. I only like the, the the foreign cinema, and I only listen to like the 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 this songs and the the British this. The German impressionist movement and the mm-hmm. post bub fuck off. I think film more than anything is something you people can be snobby about, like because like you know with everyone can have a, opinions about things based on what they like and what they don't like, and then like the middle ground is there is is telling well can you prove why it's better than that or why it's 
not good. Which is what we're trying to do on this. It's pod, easy pod. to watch something yeah. and develop an opinion yep. and a bunch of one-liner sniper mm-hmm. bits. Mm-hmm. To break it down is a little bit more complex. Yeah. And to that, yeah. and to hopefully not being one-liner sniper guys. Yeah. But critical. We hope we make you we make you laugh along the way too. Though. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, call plus single barrel minus. I think Five Hundred Days of Summer is a more unique romantic comedy the graduates a film that stood the test of time this is in there and almost a, a like a cult filmish type of sentimentality i mean it was made for like 30 million i think it only grossed like 27 yeah. so it wasn't like a hit when it came out but it's found its audience along the way this is a period though for john cusack when he's kind of at the height of his power yeah. gross point blank gross point blank is right around mm-hmm. this time you look at John Cusack now, and you're sort of scratching your head with like, man, what were you thinking with the Raven? And um, <laughs> I forgot about that. I movie. can't even remember. He did a, a pseudo noir four or five years ago that I really liked too. Do you remember what that? Something that I'm not gonna Dead Cold. That. I'm gonna look it up. Some, yeah. that's not the name of it. Did you like him in Hot Tub Time Machine? No, I hated that film. Okay. I could. I, I I thought that film was awful. Okay. No. Yeah, and I know you hate say anything. So your John Cusack like filmography is like. A few films. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's where... Say she... anything... You know what? Okay, can I just say this though? Yeah, go ahead. I ha- I don't hate Say Anything because that movie's bad. Yeah. I hate Say Anything because of who that makes me think of. Yeah. And that's a story for another day. There you go. <laughs> but that's in the top... That, that person that that movie makes me think of is one of my top five lists of most forgettable moments of all time. Okay, yeah. So that's why like, I watched that movie. The Tainted film. That movie and anything by Zeppelin, I just can't do it. Yeah. For that, for the for Those the John reasons. Cusack high fidelity top five reasons of of nostalgia. Yeah, and maybe that's why I like this movie is it hits such a nerve with me mm-hmm. of familiarity. Mm-hmm. I know it does you too because mm-hmm. you and I play this game all the time. Yeah, top five superheroes Marvel hasn't casted. Blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Top five scenarios we'd like to write if we could get a Batman script. We do that shit all the time. Exactly, and it's just how we do. Mm-hmm. So. Of course, we're going to like this movie. Yeah, Call Plus is a pretty, pretty solid rating. Yeah, it's pretty good. So, like, it's not know. rock good. It's no Serenity. Yeah, <laughs> few things are, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay, excellent. So let's um, yeah, we have a pretty interesting nightcap here. This might be my favorite nightcap of that we've ever come up with. Oh, okay. I can't wait to to discuss this. So, okay. you know, thinking, keeping in that top five, we got we're still in high fidelity mode. Matt proposed to me earlier this week. What are the top five movie sets that you would like to to be on? Like a fly on the wall or an active participant of all time. Yeah. Excellent. Do you want me to do five first or run mine down and then you? Sure. You want to go one, 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 Let's one. do five, five. Yeah. Go five ahead. and five? Yeah. You, you, we'll go back and forth. Round robin. Go first. So I like yourself in no particular order, but just kind of like kind of keeping them here. Number, f- uh, number five is The Shining. Um... This is no, there's gonna be no suspense for the for the listener, but Matt and I are gonna tackle The Shining come September. Uh, I think that's a film that's gonna elicit a pretty interesting conversation. But what a film set to be on! Kubrick was a notorious perfectionist, shooting uh, that scene of, of uh, Shelley Duvall and Jack Nicholson going uh, up the stairs, all working no play, like a hundred and forty-ish times. Like that's insane. Yeah, and you just yelling at everyone, and like it, it must. Shelley Duvall was losing her hair. She was so stressed out. Like, you, this is I can't I can't believe this is about to happen. Go ahead, go ahead. So yeah, that's yeah that's that. I would love to have been on that set just to kind of see Kubrick at work in like the confines of his headspace. But I thought that movie turned out brilliant. 
the serenity or the serendipity between what's okay. about to happen now. All right. We will never mention Shelley Duvall until we get to The Shining again until right now. Oh, we're not doing a Popeye podcast? That's what I was just going to do. Oh, it's Popeye. <laughs> I want to be on the set of Popeye. Okay. As they're watching the dailies doing mounds and mounds of cocaine. Robert Altman's Popeye. Robert Altman's Popeye with Shelley Duvall and Robin Williams. Are you freaking kidding me? You could just look at that movie and see, like, there's powder from the cocaine on the cameras. That movie is such a surreal, ethereal, weird. Yes. Man, I want, like, I don't want to do the drugs. I just want to be on set to see I just got to see how they function. Well, okay, so we got to stop because Shelley Duvall has not been mentioned twice in a podcast, maybe ever. Ever. To Shelley Duvall? That's a first. Yeah. And a last, probably. There you go. So, yeah, Popeye's number number five for me. Okay, you're number four. Oh, this is this is great. I love how this is turning out. Mm-hmm. Number four to me. You know, I'm a whore guy. You're a whore guy. Yep. I think an amazing set to have been on would have been 1981, The Evil Dead. Right. The original Evil Dead, Sam Raimi. Not only did it take them like nearly two to three years to make this film, Bruce Campbell and all the, the whole camp, but they had no money, so they kept having to go like raise money and then come back to the woods and like remake the like make the movie. But I have Bruce Campbell's autobiography. Is if, if Chins Could Kill Confessions of a B Movie Actor, it's brilliant. Oh, but I want to borrow that. Yeah, he has drawings in there of their camera rigs and setups. They would mount the 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 camera to like a two by four, and then two people would grab it and just run through the woods. And that's how it made the the kind of force thing. That's and, awesome. And it just low budget techniques to make it look big budget. I feel like you could have learned a lot on that film set of like just how you had to cut corners to make it look moderately decent. I think that would have been a blast. Like, well, let me match your okay. renegade filmmaking with my version of renegade filmmaking in the okay. same words. Robert Rodriguez and El Mariachi. Oh, yes. You made that for like 5K. Yes. Um, everything you just said, I could echo change the actors and the actresses. Mm-hmm. Uh, a crazy shoot him up that's super violent that was made for literally nickels yes um yeah the rigs on your shoulder the creativity that you had to come up with so that you could get the pieces in there that you needed yeah he was lighting that film with like garage lights from like walmart right yeah so okay so that's my number four el mariachi Ooh. i don't particularly love that film i think desperado's but better film god bless selma Hayek. yes oh my god <laughs> yeah that's, Ooh, that's a good one. one i think you could have learned a lot like just from I think you learn you could learn a lot from filmmakers put in like intense situations with no money. Right. Well, and, look, Paranormal Activity. Yeah. Maybe that's going to speak a little bit into my next one. Okay. A filmmaker with a moderate amount of money, but like an insurmountable amount of problems. And that's Jaws, 1975. Yeah. To literally nothing going right. Like the sharks, the sharks just like malfunctioning to the point where Spielberg can't even show it. And I actually think that improves the film immensely mm-hmm. and maybe no no hint but we're actually that that maybe the sharks coming to this podcast here pretty soon too pretty by soon. the way like in the summer yeah huh. but uh i think spielberg learned a lot on this film uh both as a filmmaker who was going to take the blunt if this thing was a bomb uh but also just learning to deal with difficult actors too like robert shaw who's brilliant in the film but like and drunk the whole production but like a total nightmare to work with and then your sharks malfunctioning everyone's getting seasick out in martha's vineyard like what a nightmare like i wouldn't want to like like personally make that movie but like i'd love to kind of see like how they dealt with the elements to like they turned it in the first summer blockbuster it's pretty incredible so i'll see your egos of actors on set and raise you because i'm gonna go with heat by michael mann okay 
Could you imagine being on set for the first time that mm-hmm. Pacino and De Niro had ever been in the same movie at the same time together? Yeah, throw a Val Kilmer in there too. Throw a little Val Kilmer. Plus, and then set it on a backdrop of plenty of guns and drugs. And let's use L.A. because what more do we need than to throw L.A. in there? Do you like that film? Ah, uh, man, that's a good question. I think I like it watchability-wise. Unfortunately, it's one of those films, the more I watch it, the less I want to watch it. Mm. It's initial viewing, I loved it. Mm-hmm. And I don't like a lot of Michael Mann stuff. Like, I think Manhunter shit. I think Thief is terrible. Um, uh, yeah. But I... I do you like that movie? I, I, I kind of do, yeah. This The shootout in the middle of L.A. traffic at like 5.30 is just so absurd. Yeah. It's just so... But it's so Michael Mann. He is so L.A. proper... And L.A. proud. I'm with you, though. Like, seeing De Niro and Pacino, like, on the screen together for the first time. You know, they did Godfather Part Two, and they were, like, in the movie. Right, no, I mean, on the screen. Yeah, exactly. But not together. Celluloid at the same time. Oh, yeah, that could have been that could have been fun. Or a complete nightmare. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, three nightmare. down. Those are solid. All right, All right what's, what's number two? I'll raise your heat, and I'll raise... <laughs> to maybe the most ambitious film production Cleopatra of, of all time. No, it's actually Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. Oh wow, okay. For New Line Cinema, not even like I wouldn't even call New Line Cinema top tier. You got your Warners and your Paramounts and your Universal. They're like under that. To totally bankroll the production of three films without one coming out is obscene. Like that'll yeah. never happen ever again. Never. Ever. And they filmed all three at the same time. To be on that set, and at a time when CGI is still kind of emerging, Peter Jackson was real intricate with how he was going to use models, costumes, CGI, forced perspective, like to make the hobbits look shorter than that. That could have been, like, that could have been a block. But in an epic scale, those films are huge. They're big. And I think they're really great, too. What was the total duration of shoot time for that? Location time, do you know? (laughs) Had to have been a couple years, 18 right? 18 months, I think. Yeah. A long time. Yeah. And then to not have one come out, because what if that first one was a bomber? Like, oh shit, like we have like all these other ones filmed. Are we going to release those? There's a lot banking on that first film performing, and it, it performed, thankfully. All three of them did. Yeah. I think that's a real ambitious film production. I will never see that again. We'll never, that'll never happen. Even with all the power that Marvel has right now. Yeah. Do you not think that Marvel Studios could get that greenlit for a three-film run like well, that? Well, Mar- Marvel did Infinity War and Endgame at kind of at the same... They did a similar Three's different thing. than two, though. Yeah, definitely, yeah. But then also, Marvel was proven at that point, too. The other really interesting thing about that for me is... If I have to sit down and read either Tolkien or Lewis, mm-hmm. I'd much prefer to read C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. I think the Tolkien series, the, the Fellowship of the Ring series, mm-hmm. is arduously overwrought yeah. with just verbiage and I mean, it's just it's just such a boring slow read yeah so look and that's not to say that the source material hasn't been well received sure. like everyone loves that yeah so they had that working for it mm-hmm. but you're right they did take a bit of a flyer yeah to do that and maybe peter jackson but maybe they didn't peter what did jackson done before that that eyes was it um he had done dead alive dead alive yeah and then the frighteners but good god th- th- what but th- that's huge that's that's not that's low budget horror compared to big budget fantasy epic right that's such a risk right um, roll the dice well good for them it worked out i'll tell you this god bless um that's actually bob shea robert shea who founded new line cinema he actually founded that company by taking a chance on west craven and nightmare on elm street Beautiful. Freddie built that company. Like, really. Indeed. Yeah, exactly. 
All right. What do you got? Rocky. Ooh, yeah, nice. From what that could have been with James Caan in the role of Rocky mm. to how they found Apollo Creed to Talia Shire to Sylvester Stallone and his rather auspicious beginning in film. Yeah. <laughs> you guys can look it up for yourselves yeah. and see. Again, back to that sort of avant-garde, renegade filmmaking techniques. Yeah. Uh, I want to be on the set of Rocky, man. Mm. That's Look, I don't need to sing the praises of that film. Everybody's seen it. Mm-hmm. It's obviously a masterpiece. Um, we might have to do a Rocky cask one of these days, but like when I say cask, I mean probably like the entire series, and we'll just skip five. Yeah, there is no five. <laughs> there is no five, but no, yeah, ooh, that that that's good stuff. Like literally, like you know, I love the story of how they found Creed. You know the story? Mm-hmm. Sitting in the casting room. Yeah, and well, they don't know. Like no one knows who Stallone is, and I think he's in there with Appleton, right? Yeah, yeah. And so like it's a line of guys to play the part of Creed. Yeah. And Carl Weathers, who was a linebacker for the Buffalo Bills at that time. Mm-hmm. Not even a great one. I think a special teams guy. Yeah. Okay. Like a decent football player. Mm-hmm. Showed up and he's like, well, we need to see how you move. So he's like, if you wouldn't mind kind of taking some positions with the casting agent here. Who's Stallone? Yeah. And he gets up there and Carl Weathers throws a couple of lazy little jabs at him. And Stallone basically says, like, why are you hitting like such, you know, why? Do you yeah. want the part? He fucking knocked him out. Yeah. Dropped him. Yeah. Gets up, shakes his hand. Hi, I'm I'm Rocky, and you're Apollo, and the rest is history. So good. Oh my god! And that's just one of the stories. That name too, Apollo Creed. Having to buy the script back because there was no way James Caan was going to play that. Have you ever heard that story too? That he had to sell his dog too. Yes. For like, and he had to pay like almost ninety eight thousand. Ended his marriage. Yeah, to get it back. Yes. Yeah. God, God bless us. I think he gets a bad rap for being some like doofhead, like dumb, like actor. But like the guy's a brilliant writer. He's a great director too. Yes. He made Rocky. He made Rambo. Like he, he's he's good. For all of the things that people say with Harrison Ford and the memorable roles that he's played. Yeah. Rambo. Mm-hmm. Rocky. Yeah. Versus Son Solo and Indiana Jones. Yeah. I don't know. I think Ford's got him beat a little bit, but close. I only mean a little bit. It's pretty close. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Plus, if you throw in Judge Dredd, it's no contest. Oh, God. All right, I had to do it. All right, what's your final one? All right, excellent. So my number one, I think this one takes the cake, and only because they made a whole film on the production of this film called Hearts of Darkness. It's Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. Another overly long production. Francis Ford Coppola like, had to refinance his house to get the film finished. Martin Sheen had a heart attack halfway through. Marlon Brando showed up like 100 pounds overweight, didn't know his lines. Like Francis Ford Coppola almost like wanted to murder him. Like a typhoon came and just like wrecked all their sets. They had everything that could go wrong would go wrong. And I think to kind of like take those pieces and make it work the best they could, I think they ended up with a pretty fantastic film. Like Apocalypse Now is one of those movies that like Martin Sheen's character like shows madness at the beginning and then like slowly goes mad throughout until the end. Like as the viewer, I think you go like you're like, man, I'm kind of going a little crazy watching this. It's like it's intense, it's tedious. You're in there with with um with Kurtz and um and Willard. It, it it's like it, you're totally going crazy with them. A fever dream induced by a mosquito bite with malaria. It, totally, it's the film's a fever dream. The film, the making of it was a fever. Coppola even said at times he's like he was telling us why he's like there was times I even thought about just killing myself. Like, what's the point? Like, let's forget this movie. It's not worth it. Yeah, 
But they finished it. Like they thank, did. Thank thank God. Is that your favorite war movie ever? It's not. I don't, wow. I don't. It's because that's not a film about war. It's almost the like the film about the madness of war. Yeah, genre wise, like though. a true war war. Like I love Saving Private Ryan. Not Full Metal Jacket. That's my favorite. That one's good too. I I like Platoon as well. Yeah. Um, Johnny Depp's first appearance in film, I think. Yeah, and I kind of like a little bit of The Longest Day as well. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I can't. It's hard to categorize Apocalypse Now as a war film. It's set during Vietnam, but it's not a film about the war. It's a film about what war does to a man. Yes. So, okay, my final one is also a really ultra violent sort of semi war film. It's The Wild Bunch. Oh, right. <laughs> yes. Sam Peckinpah at the very just about end of what was a pretty illustrious career, struggling health wise. Uh, that is literally a closing of the West on the screen with people that are introduced to us in a way where they're watching a bunch of children burn ants with a magnifying glass, which is Peck and Paw making a statement on there's no place left for these criminals. They have nothing left to do. So I'm going to send them out in literally a blaze of glory. Literally. The fact that that movie even made the screen is an absolute miracle. Mm-hmm. From, you know, Robert Ryan and the characters that were involved and all of the uh, interpersonal conflicts that were going on to just getting past the the haze code yeah. and what was allowed on screen. Yeah. The final 20 minutes of that movie is just a straight bloodbath. It's awesome. And shot so well. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> For what purpose? Just to blow the shit out of people. Yep, yep. And you, it, also what I really like about that, and again, this is that period, right? That 60, mid-60s. To like late seventies yeah, that you and I both really so like, um, you know, you get a look at the villains. You get to travel with the villains, mm-hmm. and they're not after it for gold. They're not like Sierra Madre. They're not after any. They're just these kind of terrible that are guys are looking for like a woman and a drink and some money yeah. and enough ammunition to make it stand up. Mm-hmm. So yeah. The Wild Bunch. That's good. A couple of weeks ago, I think it was the RoboCap po- podcast, actually, that uh, we talked about remakes you'd actually like to see. I actually mentioned The Wild Bunch. Yeah. This is funny that you brought that up because... There no, was actually, don't say it. Is it happening? There was actually a story this week. So Mel Gibson's actually going to be directing this remake of The Wild Bunch. Oh. He's actually courting. The cast is actually sounding pretty good. Uh, Peter Dinklage, uh, Jamie Foxx, and Michael Fassbender so far... Ah, that could be pretty good. Like, like keep keep going with that great casting, cause yeah, that was that was some that was one a remake I wanted to see, and it's it, that might happen actually. Interesting. Yeah, it looks like it might be set in the West. My idea was to kind of set it in modern, in like kind of like modern, like urban jungle kind of territory. But yeah, let's see what we get with that. Let's see. All right. Well, excellent. So this has been a fun cast. It's been a nice change of pace. You know we. Endgame was such a huge film. It's been nice to kind of dial it back a bit, hit yeah. some smaller films, some smartly written films, some films that people probably haven't seen. Go check them out. High Fidelity, The Graduate, 500 Days of Summer. I don't think you'll be disappointed in your in your, in your your watching experience. You might even actually add some to your repertoire of film watching. Agreed. But we're smack dab in the middle of the summer movie season right now, and Matt and I are going to definitely address that. And we got a pretty big film coming up uh, this week, Matt. Uh, let's kind of see if this little sound clip is enough to hint at what that is. So this Friday, we have Godzilla King of the Monsters, which I'm kind of excited to see. I'm a bit of a Godzilla guy. What about you, Matt? 
I am not as big as you, but I do love the character. Excellent. I remember being unhealthily obsessed with Matthew Broderick's 1998 Godzilla, which that movie kind of sucks, but like I loved it as a kid. So I'm excited to see this. We were both kind of spurned by 2014's version. Uh, you know, it was kind of the, we nicknamed that film Swimming, which, you know, the monster essentially does Swimming. that the entire the entire film but i think we were we're getting like the monster brawl that we wanted in this one so so what i read is that you know we've talked about mothra and mm-hmm. ghidorah and rodan mm-hmm. and godzilla and we know that godzilla versus king kong is coming yeah but supposedly there's teased out several other monsters in this movie as well yeah, i hope so yeah yeah so I, i'm excited to see it yeah me too Friday. So we got that coming next weekend. Something we're going to be doing, like, Godzilla's not going to be, like, the start of, like, a new cast just because uh, it's it's gonna it's kind of a one-off and we're not going to build the whole thing around it. It's sort of a flight for the next cast, though, isn't it? Exactly. So what we're calling this one next week is Small Batch. Yeah. This is Small Batch bourbon, Small Batch whiskey, and we're going to be tackling just this sole one film, and then we'll do a cast next week. We're going to do that a few times this summer. There's some films coming out later that we're going to want to tackle that uh, we don't want. We're not going to build the whole thing around it. We're just going to do a one-off review. So we're calling that small batch. But after Godzilla, we're going to have a new a new cask, and it's called Summer Tentpole Hall of Fame. And we're going to be talking about some summer blockbusters that have really set the standard from the 70s and 80s. That they're essentially why we have films today. Like, let's just be real. It's going to be a really fun cast because it'll be nostalgic and mm-hmm. contemporary at the same time, but big build your structure for your entire financial budget production studio kind of films. Mm-hmm. I got to ask you a question though. Sure. This is a crazy week, right? So yeah. you have three films to see this week before we record next weekend, don't you? Mm-hmm. Are you going to do Brightburn? I want to. Are you going to do Rocket Man? Yeah, you have to. And we have to do Godzilla. Yeah. So. Damn. <laughs> You're busy. Yeah, I'm busy. And here's what I don't understand. And we've talked about this. And this might be a flight question or a nightcap question sometime. Why in the hell are they releasing movies? Are Rocket Man and Godzilla going <laughs> up against each other on the same weekend? Exactly. They're both going to cannibalize each other and make a $70, $70, $70 million film. Yeah. What could have been maybe 200 plus? Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm camping out at the movie theater this week. If you want to come see me, like I'll be there. <laughs> me too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. So we have that coming next week. So cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Hey, I want to let everybody know that there is... We've sort of teased this out a bit. There's some exciting things coming on the horizon for Rice Smile. Mm-hmm. What this started as, which was mostly a lark for me and Jesse, and what it's grown into with you all has been nothing short of, of remarkable, and we appreciate you all so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, the t-shirts that we've talked about are in development. I'm working on that. Um, and we've got a teaser here that is, in the not-too-distant future, a multiple-entry version of rice smile films in two completely different venues and one is obviously the film critique Mm -hmm. that we do and another thing is something completely different and we'll get to that later but it's happening and i think it could be equally equally cool it's gonna be awesome it's gonna be awesome excellent jesse i love doing this every week with you viewers i love and listeners i love that you listen to us every Mm -hmm. week so um i'm sure you've got the great send-off here so let's hear it amen to all of you i gotta go i gotta go make a compilation tape maybe i'll put some frampton maybe i'll put some velvet underground gonna put some talking heads for sure can you include some live just so we get a t- little dose of like, i will some religion just for you <laughs> yes. appreciate excellent that. we'll see you next week everybody have a good week we'll see you in the dark thank you for listening to rye smile films follow us on facebook and instagram to stay in the know for future episodes be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, 
Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, and leave us an email at ricemileproductions at gmail.com. High Fidelity is property of Touchstone Pictures, Working Title Films, Dog Star Films, New Crime Productions, and Buena Vista Pictures, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. So shall we leave it at that? I've already left it. You pathetic rebound fuck, now get your patchouli stink out of my store! Move it, lardass!